So let me bring you up to speed on where we are. We have, since this past September, been in a series on the book of 2 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. This series is titled, Weak is Strong. And one of the things that we're finding is that this letter of 2 Corinthians affects people in a really unusual way. First, you're surprised, and then you're utterly startled by some of the themes that come out, because this book has a way of just crawling into your brain and kind of reordering our thinking on a number of different themes, like weakness and strength and limitations and power and suffering and blessing. And it just begins to turn things around so that we're thinking differently about God and thinking differently about the way that God works in leaders, the way that God works in people. So my prayer has been that God would just use this book, just kind of based Four Oaks with this book, so that it would, it would work to transform our minds. It would work to transform the way that we're thinking about God. And we believe that's happening in a number of important ways. So this morning we're into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So you could go ahead and open up your Bibles to chapter 12. And we're going to be reading beginning in verse 11. The title of this morning's message is The Saints, The Saint Syndrome. The Saint Syndrome. And I'm going to read in chapter 12, verse 11 through the end of chapter 12. I have been a fool, but you forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here... For the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity 
sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will remain forever. And God, it is upon the durability of that word that we trust this morning. The potency, the the resilience of your word as it goes forth. And we need your word. We are poised before your word. We desire your word to do its true work. And so we ask as we we sit before it, Lord, as I, as I speak it, that your name would be glorified and that your word would find its place in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start with a question this morning. Have you ever walked through one of those seasons where you think back and you think, you know what? That was an excruciatingly painful season, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. If you can in any way relate to that sentiment, then you can identify with where Paul is as he is writing this letter. Because Paul is the object of accusation. He is under attack. In fact, one might say he has been impaled upon the cross of criticism. And the attack that's coming at him, well, the attack has come from these intruders, these folks from the outside. Paul calls them super apostles in chapter 11 and in chapter 12. And their fundamental aim is to do two different things. The first is they want to undermine Paul's ministry, undermine his credibility so that the Corinthians are no longer following him. And the second thing they want to do is they want to win the Corinthians over to themselves. And believe me when I say their attack was not subtle. It was a frontal assault on two primary areas against Paul. The first was his competence, and the second was his credentials. In fact, let's just take a few minutes and go through what what has taken place up to this section that we just read, just to get a scope of what we're talking about. In chapter 10.10, they've launched the assault against Paul by saying that he is, quote, unimpressive. This preaching is substandard. In chapter 11, verse 5, and chapter 12, verse 11, they they say it two different times that he was inferior. They said in chapter 10, verse 2, that his his best game is in his letters. He's very unimpressive when you're with him. And if that's not enough, they've also pointed out that Paul has no letters of commendation, which, by the way, were the credentials of that day, and that according to chapter 11, verse 7, he doesn't charge for his teaching, which in the ancient world was the primary measure of true teaching talent. And then to circle back around to what we learned last week, the section from last week in chapter 12, one of the things that they're saying is that Paul has no supernatural resume whatsoever. He never talks about his supernatural experiences, so obviously that means he has none. So to summarize in a sentence what these critics are courageously saying about Paul, we can reduce it down to three simple words. They're saying he is weak. He's weak. So Paul, particularly in chapters 10 through chapters 13, is mounting a defense. 
And when we begin to truly understand what it is that he's saying in his defense, it seems utterly insane. Because Paul is basically taking all of the things that they're heaping upon him, and he's saying, you think I'm weak? You don't know how weak I really am. I'm gloriously weak. In fact, he goes as far to say in chapter 11, verse 30, that if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weaknesses. And so we have this, this idea that's come forward now where Paul is boasting in the things that makes him weak because it says something glorious about Jesus Christ and it says something about the power of God at work within him. And that's part of what's playing out throughout chapter 11. So in chapter 11, Paul is is saying repeatedly how his ministry shows that he is weak. So to these esteemed apologists who are constantly, constantly busting on him at every chance, who are parading their accomplishments in front of the Corinthians, who delight in their oratory and exult in their wisdom and travel from town to town by first class at every chance they get, what Paul does is he strikes this contrast. He begins to boast in a list of accomplishments that really represents the opposite of the world of the super apostles. He says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, super apostles, let me list for you my resume. And let me just read this, just to reorient us a little bit and remind us of what he said. This is where Paul says, let me list for you my resume. Let me list for you what indicates that I'm truly qualified before God. Five times I received by the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I spent in the sea. And on and on he goes. It's a catalog of suffering and struggle. And then, just to make sure that they really get the point, he takes an additional step to illustrate the point he's making in verse 32. Rather than doing what I'm so often tempted to do, which is to cast myself in the best light, I can want to display my best side to people when I stand in front of them. Paul goes on to just mention what seems like this random story where he is in verse 33, let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and he escaped from the hands of his opponents. It's this final story of descent. And basically what Paul is saying, listen, Corinthians, listen, super apostles, you have to understand, I'm not being trumpeted in the streets like these great teachers. I'm running like a fugitive from justice. I'm hidden in a basket. I'm descending in silence to sneak away. Paul says, here's my credentials. I've been beaten. I've been lashed. I've been shipwrecked. I've been in danger. I've been sleepless. I've been anxious. I'm not celebrated. I'm reviled. I'm not ascending, I'm descending. I'm not strong, I am weak. And so his defense is mounting. And it's extraordinary the way that he's expressing himself, but it's all coming back to the same point. In fact, in chapter 12, he does the same thing. He goes into these supernatural experiences. But the point of his supernatural experience is that even his supernatural experiences show that he's weak. So to these Corinthians who are infatuated with gifts and supernatural experiences, and to these super apostles who are boasting in their angelic visitations, Paul says, oh, oh, you want to go there? Okay, let's go there. He says, I know a man. Of course, he's talking about himself. He says, this guy was caught up into the third heaven. You know, you got the sky, you got the stars, and then you have this other dimension, this third heaven. 
He says, while he was there, he heard inexpressible things. And so to keep him from being too elated, God gave, he said, he was given a thorn, but the implication is God gave him a thorn. And we don't know what the thorn is, but for some reason, the thorn was so, so painful, so difficult, imposed so much suffering upon Paul that he prayed not once, not twice, not three times that this thorn be removed. Keep in mind that this is the guy that endured five times 40 lashes minus one, three times he was beaten by rod, but there was something about this thorn that was so painful that he went to God three times and asked him to remove it. But God answered Paul the same way God answered Paul at all times. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected, not in your strength, but in your weakness. Do you see the point, brothers and sisters? The point is that Paul is saying, listen, my ministry, it's the polar opposite of these guys. You see the super apostles? I'm the exact opposite of them. Even when I have a supernatural experience, I come away weak. Because I'm a weak man. But through that weakness, God displays his power. So what happens now in the second section of chapter 12 is that Paul begins talking specifically about the church. He's talked about the super apostles. He's talked about God and this thorn. But now he begins to talk about how weakness comes to him and manifests through him as a result of the church of what I'm calling a disorder that is the saint syndrome. And specifically, that is the weakness that comes when saints afflict you. The weakness that comes when saints afflict you. See, this is where Paul goes on to say, my church shows my weakness as well. And so I want to look together at how Paul experienced the saint syndrome, how he experienced the church showing his weakness, and he experienced weakness at the hands of the church. And so the first point is the saints' rejection. The saints' rejection. Look at verse 11. I have been a fool, he says. You forced me to it, for I I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So, so this is the situation. Just, just see if you can plug into this for a second. Paul was under attack. Ugly things are being said about him. Sinful judgments are being cast towards him. And the Corinthians, those who knew his heart those who he had lived among for 18 months, those who had experienced his care and his love, did not support him, did not defend him, did not protect him. These were believers who knew who Paul was. Again, he's saying he was there among them doing miracles. He was there among them doing mighty works. They had seen the signs of an apostle in Paul. You know, some, sometimes it's, it's, it's funny. We, we think that, well, if I had only seen super, if I had ever seen supernatural wonders from a leader, that would just like lock down my loyalty to that leader. That make, make me want to die for that man or that woman. Paul, Paul is saying here, you saw me do signs and wonders. You saw me doing mighty works, but you said nothing. 
you remained silent. See, these Corinthians, they were the kind of Christians that were happy to kind of relish in Paul's gifts as long as it came at no cost to them, as long as it made no claim upon them. And the challenge is we just don't tend to expect this from the church. See, the reason why the saint syndrome is so disorienting is because we never expect it. We expect rejection from the world. We expect weakness from our experiences in the world. But we just see the church as different. And I'm not sure exactly what it is that leads us to our conclusions of of what the church is supposed to be. We, you know, we see the church as a kind of ark that is carrying us safely through the storm that's flooding the world outside. And, and that is a nice visual. But we never tend to think about the smell in the ark when all those animals are thrown together and the door is closed for a year with other human beings present and where that ultimately goes. I recently met with a guy who was a leader who spoke of deep wounds that he carried over the way that Christians had responded to him in disagreeing with him and how he never expected to see that side of believers. And then only only hours after that, I met with a husband who just felt, felt stabbed in certain ways by certain careless comments that were made to him and his wife as, as a result of the miscarriage that she had experienced. And there was this sense where as I'm listening, I'm realizing, oh yeah, they never expected the smell. They never expected the smell. You go to the church, you don't think that there's going to be any smell. And you know what that feels like. I mean, I know what that feels like. I've been hurt by believers who profess their loyalty. I've hurt believers to whom I professed my loyalty. And and there's a sense where, you know, a guy signs up for Christianity or a woman signs up for Christianity. We don't have the reality. We're not thinking about the reality of the smell, of the fact that there might be rejection. It's like we're sold a Christianity that's nothing like Christianity. It's like it's swamplands that we're being sold. Something that has no value, a gospel that has no value. Because at the center of the gospel that we believe and that we were just singing about during worship is the story of Jesus, a Savior who was denied, who was betrayed, who was abandoned, not by just the masses, but by those who followed him most closely. By those who were in orbit around him. And ultimately, his life bottomed out when when he was hanging upon the cross and he had this cry of desolation where he cried out, my God, my God, have you Have you even forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It's a reminder to us that the Savior experienced the ultimate rejection. The Father turning His face away because the sins, our sins, had been imputed to the Son. And that was His experience. And the student is not greater than the Master. And so if Christ's followers rejected Him, you too will be rejected at times by Christ's followers. From the church, you too will experience weakness, will experience the smell. I know if you're a guest here, you're saying, boy, this is an odd way to attract people. 
You know, I didn't see this on your website, Dave. Visit Four Oaks. Can you endure the smell? But see, this is not a Four Oaks thing. This is a God thing. This is a human thing. And if we don't come to terms with it, we're going to become superficial believers who move from one church to the next church because we keep encountering the smell. Because we keep encountering this weakness or this sin, not knowing that we are a carrier of the very smell that we are seeking to avoid, that we are part of the problem, that we are part of the the waft, the aroma. God never promised a perfect church. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul's trying to educate the Corinthians about. He told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's not like we're being put forward as the church because we are these sterling examples within the culture. God says, I'm going to choose the foolish. That's what's going to shame the wise. That's the upside-down way I have of doing things. I make strong weak. I make weak strong. And it's as we move towards Jesus that we find ultimately a place for our rejection because in him we have the only one who ever truly was loyal. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He was perfectly loyal to all of his disciples. He was perfectly trustworthy and faithful in all the things he was given to do. You know, I finished a book the other day on the 40-year friendship between J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Fascinating. You know, it, it started with the group that they had where they met with in the Child and the Eagle, the pub in England. The Inkling, Inklings was called the group. There was those two and then a few other guys. And they would, they would read what, they're, what they were writing at the time. And so there are stories of, of Tolkien reading Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbit to them. In fact, at one point, and this is just an aside, but this is really interesting. At one point, Tolkien became so disillusioned in his writing of Lord of the Rings that he had lost vision to complete it. He had set it aside. And it was C.S. Lewis that stepped in and exhorted him and encouraged him and brought him back to the writing table. But like most long-term friendships, there were complications, there were coolings, um, Tolkien never approved of C.S. Lewis's marriage to Joy Gresham because of the complications that took place around that. But when The Lord of the Rings was published, Lewis wrote this glowing endorsement about the quality of what it was that J.R. Tolkien had produced. But Tolkien's publisher strongly opposed using Lewis's endorsement. See, this was a time, and this is hard to believe, but this is a time where C.S. Lewis was under tremendous criticism himself for the positions that he took on certain issues. And when they asked Tolkien what he wanted to do, Tolkien absolutely insisted in using Lewis's endorsement. He wanted to be, he said, I want to be associated with C.S. Lewis in any negative reaction that comes towards his name and any negative reaction that comes towards his words. I want to be associated with him. I want my name to go with him. Do you have friends like that? Do you know people like that? Do you have them in your life? We, we all want that, don't we? We all long for that. See, this is what the church is supposed to be toward people. And this is what the churches can be because of the gospel. It unites sinners together and binds us in loyalty despite our sins, 
despite our weaknesses, despite the, the smell. And, and if, that, if that appeals to you, if you feel like you're, you're looking for something like that, I want to encourage you to come out on May 22nd to the Engage meeting and just learn a little bit more about what it means to be a part of, of this local church. So we're talking about the saints first, the saints' rejection. And now I'm moving on to the saints' judgments. The saints' judgments. Look at, look at verse 13. Paul says, For in him, or for in... What were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me for this. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I'm not gonna, I don't want to be a burden, he says. I want to seek not what is yours, but you. Children don't save up for their parents. It's parents that save up for their children. I love you more. Should I be loved less? He says, granting that I myself didn't burden you, you're saying I was crafty. You're saying I got the better of you by deceit. And he begins to talk about some of the ways that He's being looked at by the Corinthians. He's being things that the Corinthians are assuming about him. And the reason I want to I target in on this is because this passage resurfaces a tension that is, it is at issue throughout this, this entire epistle. It kind of came out in the last chapter when Paul said in verse 7, Did I commit a sin because I preach the gospel to you free of charge? Did, did I sin against you for preaching to you free of charge? Now that may sound absolutely crazy to us, but we have to understand something of the cultural realities of the Corinthians back then. See, what a teacher was paid back then was the indicator of their worth. In Corinth, a wealthy leader, a wealthy teacher was immediately assumed to be a credible teacher. A wealthy leader was immediately assumed to be a quality leader. So, an impoverished leader was a failed leader. It was a clear sign that there were little gifts, little name, little stature, little, little following. Which is why Paul talks about this disadvantage in verse 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except I didn't burden you. You're saying you're less favored, but I didn't even make you pay anything, and yet you see that as being less favored in my eyes. See, this is not dissimilar to some of the streams of faith teaching, where greater wealth means greater faith. Greater wealth means a greater application of the teachings and faith. But when we understand what Paul's doing, see, this is where we gain just a whole new appreciation for Paul. Because he understands both their poverty and their worldview. And so he determines that he will not burden them. That's a word he continues to use. He uses it three different times in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 16. He talks about burdening them. He doesn't want to burden them. He doesn't want that to rest upon them. Because he knows in part that this is how the false teachers did it. But he also knows that when you're with a Corinthian and they're given money, there's always strings attached. And Paul wanted no strings attached to his ministry because at the heart of the gospel, Paul knew that the heart of gospel ministry, it's not about income, it's not about money, it's not about being influenced by other people, it is about service. So he actually spells out why in the passages that follow. He says in verse 14, I seek not you know, what you can give me, I seek you. 
Then he gives that analogy, kids don't save for their parents, parents save for the kids. He says, I love you, and he follows in verse 15 by saying, I love you, and I want to spend not your money, I want to be spent upon you. Now, this is where it really gets crazy, because you feel like you're you're sitting at the Mad Hatter's table as you realize that the Corinthians are taking those motivations and the fact that Paul will not take their money, and they're judging him for that. And by the way, if you're here and you're a part of Four Oaks, I want to assure you that the pastors will never tempt you that way if you want to give money to Four Oaks and you're a member here. This is how how far they're going. In verse 16, they're, they're, they're distorting Paul's motivation so much that they're saying he's crafty. Oh, he's tapping the till in some other way. He's deceptive. You've got to watch him. And this entire section then forms this kind of screenshot into Paul's ministry where Paul was making these huge sacrifices for these people that he loves and those sacrifices are being spit back right into his face. Those sacrifices are being used as evidence of his own selfishness. They're being twisted and distorted and used as a way to seek to manipulate him. Now let me ask you a question as you think about that. How do you do when somebody calls your sacrifices sinful? I mean, how do you do when somebody calls the good that you're trying to do evil? Because that's exactly what's going on. There are few times that we are tempted more than in that moment. There are few times that we are tempted to get to a throwdown quicker than when we are approaching a situation and we have a genuine desire to serve And somebody doesn't just ignore that or neglect that, but they seize upon that and they use that as an illustration of how we are self-interested. I mean, I think about 1 Samuel. You've got Hannah. She's praying in the temple. She wants a child. She has no child. She's grieving before the Lord. She's crying out to God and she's whispering this prayer, but her lips are moving. And Eli sees her, he immediately assumes she's drunk, he goes and he corrects her very forcefully. You have Matthew chapter 12, you have the, Jesus comes upon a demon-possessed man. Out of compassion, he heals the man by casting the demon out. The Pharisees look at that and they say, oh, he's able to cast out demons because he has a demon. Jesus acting out of compassion and love, heals a man, liberates a man. The Pharisees see that and say, he has a demon. That's the kind of thing that's going on in Corinth. And by the way, this doesn't just happen in the Bible. This isn't just a Bible thing. I mean, parents, you know what I'm talking about. You scrimp and save to go to Disney because you've seen the advertisements. You live in Florida. You know it's right down the street. You have these expectations. But from the moment you arrive, there's just, it's impossible to meet everyone's expectations. There are lines, there is impatient, there is anger, there is bloodshed. And I'm just talking about mom and dad there. We haven't even gotten to the kids. You, you, you've done so much, and yet there's so little thanks. Or, or maybe for you, it's more like, like Paul. You know, it, it happened at the hands of God's people. Maybe, maybe you swallowed your fear and you spoke honestly. But you were told they think you're lying. 
You had Christians standing in front of you telling you they think you're lying. Maybe you opened your home, and that was a credible sacrifice. You prayed, you sought God, and then you invited somebody in, and then somehow, and you don't understand how this happened because it was mysterious, but it happened, you became the very reason for all of the problems that they had. And you became the reason when they explained it to other people for all of the problems they had. Or maybe you're rushing home from work to make small group. Maybe you're skipping dinner. You arrive 15 minutes late. Somebody leans over to you and says, don't they have clocks in that place you work? See, there are just crazy times in life where giving our very best can elicit the worst from somebody else. Sinful judgments. A certain aroma. The church smells. One of the glories of the cross is that since Jesus took God's judgment for our sins, we don't need to be imposing judgments upon one another. We don't need to be exacting judgments and exacting behavior from one another. And this is a revolutionary thought that I think comes right out of the text. And that is, as Christians, we are commanded by God that when we lack information, we're supposed to fill in what we lack with the best of thoughts. 1 Corinthians 13 calls it believing the best. Love believes the best. Love thinks the best. That when you're in a situation where you're unable to know, and this is most situations, you're unable to know what somebody else is thinking, you're unable to know their motives, that as believers, we are not given the freedom to speculate on people's motives. We're supposed to fill in the best, to interpret one another's actions, not in the worst light, as the Corinthians are doing, but in the best light, because love believes the best. But the Corinthians are just laying this sinful judging trip upon Paul. Jonathan Edwards once said, judging becomes evil when, number one, the evidence does not oblige it, and number two, we enjoy it. And oh, let's be honest, how much we enjoy it. How the feeling of superiority that it elicits can become utterly intoxicating. And we enjoy it. And we need to change the way we look at ourselves. We're not discerning. We're not just one of those that speak our mind because that's the righteous high road. We're not, we're not advocating for the people because the people need to know that information on that person. No, we're just, we're just judgmental. That's our default. And the gospel reminds us in the midst of that, that, that at the cross, it speaks to me by saying that I didn't get the judgment I deserved at the cross. I actually got, as an enemy of God who spoke against God, I got mercy. So I can't live the rest of my life judging other people. Because of the gospel, the church, the church is called to speak about others and think about others in the same way that we want others to think and speak about us. Next time you open up your mouth, just ask the question, how would I want them representing me? Because that's a very sobering question. And it sets the bar really high. And it checks our spirit and moves it back to 1 Corinthians 13. So that's the second point, the saints' judgments. The saints' judgments. we got the saints' rejection, the saints' judgments. And then the last point is 
slow-changing saints. That's the last saint syndrome, the slow-changing saints. Look at verse 19. He says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves? No, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. It's for your upbuilding. I fear that I'm going to come to you, and I'm not going to be as I wish, and you're not going to be as I wish, and I'm not going to be as you wish, he says. That there's going to be a whole set of other problems. There's going to be quarreling and jealousy. And he goes through this long list of things that could take place. In other words, Paul was saying, I know that you think that this is all about me defending myself. But if you think that, you're missing two important things. First, it's really about God. And secondly, it's really about you. It's about your upbuilding. He says it's about these things because... You have unfinished business in your life, Corinthians, that affects both of us. He says, it affects me because I fear that you are entrenched in certain sins and I'm going to come and I'm going to be disheartened by your disobedience and have to act in the face of your disobedience. By the way, this is a serious list of sins. I mean, just listen to the things he's saying. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, slander, gossip, all kinds of sexual sins. See, this is, these are the sins that were being committed all the way back in 1 Corinthians. Which means what you have in the Corinthian church is you have people that are changing, but maybe slowly or at least slower than expected. And when you consider what's going on here, when you consider how Little growth has taken place. I think one of the most astonishing verses in this entire section is verse 14, where Paul says, here, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I'm ready to come to you. You want to just isolate a picture of Paul's heart. Paul's heart for slow-changing Christians. It's there, right there in verse 14. I want to come to you. Corinthians, I know you're a mess but I'm coming to you. Oh yeah, I know, that you've, I know that you've betrayed me. I know that you've denied me. I know you've judged me, but I'm coming to you. I'm not coming to you for the first time. I'm not coming to you for the second time. I'm coming to you for a third time, Corinthians. What is it in a man who is the object of this kind of sin and yet stands up to say, I'm coming to you again. I'm pressing in once again. I'm going to come to you for the third time now. Interesting little twist on a word in in verse 12 where he talks about doing these miracles with utmost patience is the phrase he used. It means perseverance, but the Greek word there means to get under something and to remain underneath it. It it, it literally means to bear a burden. It's it's, it's a very heavy word. And so Paul is saying, "I, I... I'm coming to you with patience, the kind of patience that will bear your burden. See, this is a man that knows the gospel. This is a man that understands the gospel. You've heard me say something here before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to say it in a different way, and then next time I have an opportunity, I'm going to say it again, and then as long as I'm in this pulpit, I'm going to be saying this. And that is that how we respond to sin reveals our true grasp of the gospel. How we respond to sin reveals our true grasp of the gospel. Now, now let's nuance that a little bit. How we respond to saints in sin reveals our true grasp 
of the gospel. How we respond to progress with sinfulness reveals our true grasp of the gospel. And this is a lesson that landed with a, with a thud in my life as a new believer. And I think it was shortly after I got married. I remember having a conflict with Kim that was about something that was, I don't, it was so insignificant, I don't even remember what it was about. But I just remember having these strong feelings, like, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not having to put up with this. It doesn't seem right that I have to deal with this. And I realized as I, as I kind of unwrapped that and began to look beneath what my soul was saying to what the motives of my soul was generating that behavior, that there was this driving assumption, this sense of entitlement that was deep in my soul, which was, I shouldn't have to bear this burden. I shouldn't have to have the inconvenience of somebody else's sin foisted upon me. And it might not even be their sin, it's just I perceive it as their sin. I shouldn't have the hassle. I shouldn't have someone else having to slow me down with the areas where they're not as far as I think they should be, so that when when it would happen, I would react angrily, or I would react ungraciously, or withdraw emotionally. You know what I'm talking about. Paul says, I know you're a little slow, Corinthians, but I'm coming to you. I know you're a mess, Corinthians, but I'm coming to you. I'm afraid of what I'll find, Corinthians, but I'm coming to you. Where does that resilience come from? And I can only believe that it goes all the way back to the day that he met Jesus Christ, when he was walking on that road to Damascus, when the Savior stood before him, And Paul had been fresh off the trail of oppressing Christians, of seeking to eliminate the name of Jesus Christ, and Jesus appeared before him, and Paul saw the nail prints in his hand. Paul saw the piercings in his feet. And then Paul looked at his own hand and saw the hammer hanging off his hand, knowing that it was him that pinned the Lord to the cross. Paul knew that his goal was to destroy everything that this man who had appeared in front of him stood for, that he was a persecutor, that he was an insolent opponent, that as Stephen himself was being stoned, Paul was standing there not only in approval, but he was holding people's coats. Come on, come on over here, just give me your coats. And the one whose name that he had worked his entire life to extinguish now stood before him, had come to him, was speaking to him, was reaching out to him, was calling to him, and saying, I know you're an enemy, but I love you. And that's why I'm coming to you. See, Paul knew he was still an enemy, but Jesus came to him. And so he too had to go and do the same. Not one time, not two times but a third time. And as he grew to love sinners, as he grew to love these slow-changing Corinthians, there was a sense that what that represented was Paul submitting himself to being impaled on a cross of criticism and enduring that so that God would be glorified. And as he grew to love them, as he accepted the smell, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? 
As he accepted the smell that comes when Christians huddle together in an ark while the tempest rages outside, he came to understand something that you and I are coming to understand as we read and study this book. And that is that through his weakness would come God's grace. That God would produce a weakness in him that would arrive in his life and ultimately manifest in his life as the power of God. And so that very weakness that he experienced even at the hands of Christians would become his strength. May the same be said of us. Let's pray.